This is Publishers Weekly Radio, the authority on all things books and publishing, with everything you need to know from your favorite books and the world in which they live to bestseller lists and publishing news. Here's the inside story on your favorite story. Publishers Weekly Radio, with your hosts, Rose Fox and Mark Rotella. Hello and welcome to Publishers Weekly Radio on the web at publishersweekly.com slash pwradio and streaming free on iHeartRadio, iTunes, and audiobookradio.net. I'm Rose Fox and I'm a Senior Reviews Editor at Publishers Weekly. And I'm Mark Rotella, Senior Editor at Publishers Weekly. We're bringing you the very best of book talk directly from PW's offices in New York City, the heart of the book publishing world. On today's show, author Richard Rothstein discusses his new book, The Color of Law, A Forgotten History of How Our Government Segregated America. Then PW Editorial Director Jim Milliot explains the controversy over Amazon's buy buttons. But first, here's a sneak peek at next week's Publishers Weekly bestseller list, powered by NPD BookScan. So in hardcover fiction, we have a new number one, two, and three. It's an exciting week over here. New number one is 16th Seduction by James Patterson. No surprise, it's up at the top, and it's the Women's Murder Club series number 16. Uh, This one is co-written with Maxine Pietro, and uh, we don't have a review of this, but it's the 16th book featuring Detective Lindsay Boxer, uh, who faces what the jacket copy calls a heart-stopping threat in the newest Women's Murder Club thriller. Mm. And uh, that's at number one. And then at number two, Into the Water by Paula Hawkins, author, obviously, of The Girl on the Train. And this is a twisty psychological thriller in which Jules Abbott, the heroine, vowed never to return to the sleepy English town of Beckford after an incident when she was a teenager drove a wedge between her and her older sister. But now her sister is the latest in a long string of women found dead in a part of the local river known as the Drowning Pool. Mm. And that's not a suicide spot. It's a place to get rid of troublesome women. So uh, we say that Hawkins may be juggling a few too many storylines for comfort, but the payoff of the book packs a satisfying punch. Great. That's at number two. And at number three, we have Against All Odds by Danielle Steele. Um, again, we don't have a review of this. Uh, the uh, jacket copy says that this novel is centered on the relationship challenges and triumphs of a long-widowed mother and her four adult children. So some Danielle Steele books have more of a romancy angle. Some have more of a thriller angle. This seems to be very squarely in the women's right. fiction bracket. But... Uh, you know, if you're a Daniel Steele fan, of course, you will gobble it up. Anything. Yep. At number six, we have The Broken Road by Richard Paul Evans. Um, no review of this one, but uh, it's he's the author of The Mistletoe Promise, and uh, he, he writes a, a lot of sort of very feel-good novels um, that I think, if he were a woman, would probably be considered squarely in the women's fiction bracket, mm. but are not necessarily right. categorized that way with a male author. So this is the first novel in a trilogy uh, that explores the question of what could you start over? And it's about a man who suffers from nightmares and is trying to figure out what exactly went wrong in his life. Mm. And uh, finally, down at number 12, we have Robert B. Parker's Little White Lies by Ace Atkins. Uh, We say in our review that a taut, suspenseful storyline drives the sixth novel featuring uh, Spencer, um, the sixth novel written by Atkins featuring Robert B. Parker's Spencer hero. And uh, we say that some interesting tension arises because his partner, who's a therapist, feels responsible for his involvement in an increasingly perilous case, and her professional ethics constrain her from giving him important information. 
One of the things that my reviewers complain about a lot is plots predicated on people not talking to each other. And so it's refreshing to see an actual decent reason for someone to not share the information right. they have, right. which in this case is a therapist's um, patient mm. privilege, which is extremely important. Right. So that's what we've got on the hardcover fiction list. Nonfiction, new number one, Astrophysics for People in a Hurry by Neil deGrasse Tyson. And uh, in it, he questions, what is the nature of space and time? How do we fit within the universe? And how does the universe fit within us? So already getting lots of uh, publicity right at number one. Next one we have is number eight. I hope I screw this up. How falling in love with your fears can change the world. Kyle Cease. And this is a, a memoir. We say in the jacket copy, we don't have a review of this. After 25 years of achieving what he thought were his dreams of being a headlining touring comedian actor, Kyle Cease suddenly discovered that the belief was when something happens, I will be happy is a complete lie. So in this, he talks about that. So um, memoir and maybe a little bit of self-help in there too uh at number nine women who work rewriting the rules for success ivanka trump no surprise there it's been getting a lot of play number 17 uh, this is going to our you know, back with the self-help but for food eat to live quick and easy cookbook by joel Furman. he's the one who wrote eat to live and the end of dieting and here we say that Furman, who's uh best-selling author of those books shares 131 quick to assemble recipes based on his nutrient dense approach to eating which he claims will promote lifelong health and permanent weight loss while the dishes remain unfussy many recipes require a quality high-powered blender or food processor so that's what people will have to look forward to investing in should they want to cook from this book number 24 you don't look your age and other fairy tales by sheila nevins again we don't have a review of this but the uh jacket copy says an astonishingly astonishingly frank funny poignant book for any woman who wishes they had someone who would say to them this happened to me. Learn from my mistakes and my successes because you don't get smarter as you get older, you get braver. So a little, again, memoir with some self-help inside there. And I just want to dip a little bit past. We usually just do 25, 26. We just have another cookbook, Fabio's 30-Minute Italian, Fabio Viviani. Uh, he's a restaurateur and TV personality. There's a lot of photos of him throughout the book, heavily photographed. We say in this ultimately accessible cookbook, there are delicious close-ups of multicolored entrees such as sea bass with red pepper sauce or pistachio gremolata and a mascarpone sauce so really photo heavy kind of flashy but accessible and that's what we have so wait that that's not fabio the the romance cover no no because no, when not. you say heavily photographed yes no exactly that's what i think no but no no different guy different different one <laughs> <laughs> Could be with his hair short. I mean, he's Italian, but... <laughs> I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella, and this is Publishers Weekly Radio. Next up, Richard Rothstein tells us where segregation came from and how it has persisted in America. We'll be right back. Hi, I'm Yvette Johnson, the author of The Song and the Silence. And you are listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. I'm Mark Rotella. And I'm Rose Fox, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio, direct from the PW offices in New York City. Today, we've got Richard Rothstein on the line. His new book is The Color of Law, a forgotten history of how our government segregated America. Hello, Richard. So glad you could join us. 
Hello. Thank you. So in your book, you talk about uh, the systematic racial segregation we find in metropolitan areas today. Could you tell us a little bit about the, the beginnings of that segregation, a little background? Sure. We typically think of segregation in metropolitan areas today as something that we call de facto segregation, something that happened because of private prejudice or because of people's choices to live with others of the same race or because real estate agents may have steered them to different places uh, or because maybe income differences that prevented African-Americans from living in middle-class neighborhoods. And because we believe in this myth of de facto segregation, uh, it's very difficult to figure out how to desegregate our neighborhoods because if it all happened by millions of individual choices, it's very difficult to think of how we might undo that um, situation. But in fact, uh, as I describe in the book, the residential patterns in every metropolitan area of this country were created by explicit federal, state, and local policy designed to separate the races and to create the segregated landscape that we're familiar with. Uh, And if it is that the case, and I demonstrate that it is in the book, then we have, in effect, a de jure system of residential segregation, a government-sponsored system of residential segregation that demands a constitutional remedy because it was created unconstitutionally. So the main policies began in the New Deal. Uh, Most of us think, for example, of public housing as a place where low-income particularly African-Americans, maybe Hispanics live uh, unemployed, single families, uh, single parent families. But that's not how public housing began. Public housing began in the New Deal. In 1933, the Public Works Administration was a, uh, began uh, the, one of the first New Deal administrations, uh, New Deal agencies, uh, and it began to build civilian public housing for the first time in the nation's history. And it built it on a segregated basis uh, across the country, in the North, Midwest, uh, West, uh, and the South. But this was not a Southern uh, phenomenon. This was a federal government segregating the North. And it frequently built public housing in places which had never known segregation before. And it built segregated public housing in these places, creating patterns that endured. So, for example, uh, you may uh, be familiar with uh, Langston Hughes' uh, autobiography. Uh, and in his autobiography, he, The Big C, he describes how he grew up in a Cleveland neighborhood that was integrated. Many cities in the North and the South at that time were, uh, had integrated neighborhoods because workers had to live close enough to the factories where they worked to be able to walk to work. They didn't have private automobiles, good transportation systems. So many neighborhoods were integrated. Uh, Langston Hughes grew up in a Cleveland neighborhood where he went to high school. His best friend was Polish. He dated a Jewish girl. Uh, This was typical of cities across the country. The Public Works Administration demolished that neighborhood and instead built segregated public housing, a separate project for whites, separate project for blacks, not projects that whites happen to apply to and a separate project that blacks happen to apply to. These were designated racially, and it created segregation in Cleveland that hadn't been known before. Uh, in some cities, there was already a substantial African-American population that was uh, informally segregated, and these policies reinforced that segregation by building public housing for African-Americans in already uh, in neighborhoods that already had concentrations of African-Americans and building um, projects for whites far outside those neighborhoods to reinforce the segregation of the communities. Then in World War II, uh, workers from across the country uh, flocked to centers of defense production to take jobs, 
And in many cases, they came to centers of defense production where there were no African-Americans before. Both white and black workers flocked to these centers. The federal government created segregation in many of these communities where there were no African-Americans living before the war by building separate projects uh, for black workers and for white workers, uh, creating segregated patterns in those cities. this continued, as I say, across the country, and the, the housing there was, was uh, in that period, was primarily for middle-class families, mostly for whites, uh, not the African-Americans building public housing for them was a secondary consideration, and not much was built to them. Some was, but it was all segregated. Uh, in 1949, there was still an enormous civilian housing shortage, and uh, uh, President Truman uh, proposed a massive expansion of the public housing program to take care of all the returning veterans who were forming families and had no place to live. He uh, proposed a National Housing Act, and conservatives in Congress uh, decided that they could defeat the National Housing Act, not because of racial reasons. Remember, it was mostly for whites at that time. They were opposed to uh, public involvement in the private housing market at all. They thought it was socialistic. So they wanted to defeat the public housing program, and they came up with a technique of, of proposing what we call a poison pill amendment to the National Housing Act. Conservatives proposed that uh, all public housing from now on had to be integrated. And uh, uh, obviously the fact that they proposed this amendment uh, suggests that everybody knew that it was segregated at the time. Uh, Liberals in Congress uh, were faced with the choice of accepting the integration amendment, and if they accepted it, then Southern Democrats would have abandoned the public housing program and there would have been no public housing at all, or fighting against the integration amendment, and liberals in Congress led the campaign to defeat the integration amendment that was proposed in Congress by conservatives. Uh, The campaign to uh, defeat the the integration amendment was led by Hubert Humphrey, uh, the civil rights senator, and uh, another liberal senator, Paul Douglas. And the civil, the integration amendment was defeated. The public housing act was, the National Housing Act was been passed. Uh, uh, an enormous amount of additional public housing was built, much of it the high-rise towers that became familiar, we became familiar with. After a short period of time, um, in the 1950s, civilian housing construction in the private sector began to uh, expand. And... Um, uh, they've developed large numbers of vacancies in all of the white projects and large waiting lists in the black projects. Uh, for example, one of the probably the best well-known or one of the best known um, of the projects built in, under the 1949 Housing Act was the pruitt Igo Towers in St. Louis. The Pruitt Towers were for African-Americans. The Igo Towers were for whites, explicitly designated in that way. Um, in the mid-1950s, though, the Igo Towers had vacancies and the Pruitt Towers had uh, long waiting lists. And this was true all across the country. Eventually, um, uh, it became so conspicuous that all public housing was open to African-Americans. They filled the projects. Whites continued to leave. and. Then industry left the central cities, and the people living in public housing became poorer and poorer with less and less employment, and they became the vertical slums that we associate with public housing today, but that's not how it started. Well, why uh, was there large vacancies? Were there large vacancies in um, the uh, white projects and long waiting lists in the black projects? Well, that was the result of another major federal housing program. Uh, The Federal Housing Administration was uh, uh, established in 1934 
many people are familiar with the fact that the Federal Housing Administration redlined communities and didn't extend mortgages to African Americans in African American neighborhoods. Uh, but um, that's a minor part of what the Federal Housing Administration did to segregate the country. The main effort of the Federal Housing Administration was to subsidize mass production builders of suburbs across the country, single-family homes, um, uh, on a segregated basis. So the Federal Housing Administration required that subdivisions that were created in the 1940s and 50s uh, and into the 60s uh, be, be uh, for whites only and that no homes be sold to African Americans. Perhaps the best-known example of that is Levittown, um, uh, just east of New York City in Nassau County. Uh, Levittown, uh, 17,000 homes. William Levitt and his family could never have assembled the capital to build 17,000 single-family homes, uh, for which they had yet no buyers. Um, uh, the only way they could get the capital to construct that development was with a federal guarantee of bank loans, and the federal government required that Levitt sell no homes to African Americans, and further required that Levitt put in every deed in a Levittown home a clause prohibiting resale to African Americans. And this was done across the country to suburbanize the country. So whites left the public housing projects. Remember, these were for middle-class whites who had lost their homes in the Depression or was or there was no housing shortage. They weren't for poor people. Uh, they left the public housing projects uh, like uh, the Igo Towers, subsidized by the federal government to move to single-family home suburbs. In many cases, these white families could pay less in, with their monthly mortgage payments in single-family homes in the suburbs uh, with an FHA or VA-insured mortgage and uh, no down payment if they were veterans. They paid less uh, for their single-family homes on a monthly basis than they paid in rent for um, uh, public housing. So these two programs worked together uh, to segregate metropolitan areas, like I say, which had never known segregation before, and to reinforce it where it existed. Uh, public housing wound up concentrating African-Americans in central cities, uh, and the Federal Housing Administration suburbanized the white population in uh, encircling the central cities, and these are the patterns that still exist today. So were these two agencies, were they intentionally trying to segregate? I mean, what was the need for for the uh, public housing? What got that started? Well, the public housing was necessary because in the Depression, many, many families had lost their homes. There was no housing being built. And the Public Works Administration first began building public housing to try to both stimulate the uh, construction industry and to provide housing for homeless middle-class families in the Depression. Uh, that was the original purpose of the program, and it was done on a segregated basis. It didn't have to be done on a segregated basis. Uh, it was done on a segregated basis, and its effects uh, interacted with the Federal Housing Administration policies to create patterns that still exist today. So how did we end up with this, uh, this difference between the cities that had, as you said, integrated neighborhoods where people were living pretty comfortably side by side, and the government that was absolutely adamant about segregation as policy? Well, we ended up that way because the federal government had a segregationist um, policy. It, it was not, you know, much has been written about how in many cases the federal government in a deal, the, uh, the Roosevelt administration, had to compromise with uh, southern segregationist uh, senators and congressmen to enact its economic program. So, for example, the minimum wage law was adopted with um, an exclusion for the industries that African Americans typically worked in uh, at the demand of southern 
senators and congressmen. But when it came to housing, that was not necessary because southern senators and congressmen had no objection to integrated housing in the north or the west or the midwest so long as they were able to preserve segregation in the south. The uh, decision to segregate housing in the north was strictly a federal decision that was not based on a requirement to uh, compromise with uh, southern segregationist congressmen and senators. It was a policy of the Roosevelt administration. So tell us a little bit about uh, other issues related to housing, uh, such as sundown towns, subprime loans, other ways that segregation was enforced in housing. All right. After the Civil War, uh, many uh, African-Americans fled the South, uh, particularly after Reconstruction ended, uh, and settled throughout the country in towns across the country. In my book, uh, The Color of Law, I write about Montana which had a substantial African-American population in the late 19th century and early 20th century. And uh, the, when the Jim Crow era began, not just in the South, but throughout the country, African-Americans were forced out of these integrated communities in um, places not just Montana, but in, in across the country, and uh, forced into cities where they lived in segregated communities, partly because of these federal policies of segregation. Uh, the Montana example I give uh, in the late 19th century, um, the policeman who patrolled the white neighborhoods of uh, Montana was an African of, of Helena was an African American. So this was not a a, a case of uh, segregation that began after the Civil War. The, these towns were mostly integrated, but you refer to the term sundown towns that uh, that refers to a policy that many towns adopted when the Jim Crow era began in the uh, early 20th century of uh, passing laws or um, enforcing with police action the uh, removal of African Americans from cities after sundown so they couldn't remain in in towns after sundown. We're going to take a quick break, but don't go away. Book lovers everywhere love Publishers Weekly Radio, now on iHeartRadio.com. PW Radio brings you the best of books and book publishing news. PW editors Rose Fox and Mark Rotella offer lively interviews with your favorite authors and conversations with new authors you'll want to get to know. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella. Join the community of book lovers at PW Radio. Every Friday and now on demand at iHeartRadio.com. Welcome back. We're talking with Richard Rothstein, author of The Color of Law. So you've touched on this a little bit. Um, Segregation happened all over the country, but many people think of it as just a Southern thing. So how did that misperception arise? Why, Why do people still believe that segregation didn't or doesn't happen outside of the South? Well, people understand that we're segregated outside the South. Uh, That's widely, uh, all you need to do is open your eyes to see that. What people's misperception is uh, this notion that it's a de facto segregation. The Supreme Court uh, Mm. began that term, and now it's been adopted across the political spectrum. Everybody, um, virtually everybody, talks about de facto segregation as something that just happened by private choice or or private discrimination. And if there's de facto segregation, then there's no constitutionally permitted remedy to it uh, because it's not a constitutional violation. What people don't understand, it's not that they don't see us segregated. All you have to do is look around, look in any school, look in any neighborhood, you can see it segregated. What people don't understand and, and have forgotten is that this segregation didn't happen by accident. 
didn't happen because of personal prejudice or private choices. It happened because the federal government required every metropolitan area to be segregated. And uh, its effects endure today. Um, for example, uh, I, I mentioned a few minutes ago uh, Levittown, uh, which was built in the late 1940s as a segregated, white segregated community. Uh, Levittown homes in the late 1940s sold for about $7,000 a piece, $7,000 a piece, uh, equivalent to about $100,000 in today's currency. That's twice national median income. Uh, working class families uh, can afford to buy a home at twice national median income, especially if they have an FHA mortgage and a, or a VA mortgage with no down payment. Um, African Americans could have afforded those homes in Levittown as easily as whites could have. Um, my uncle bought a home in Levittown, and uh, when he was returned from World War II as a veteran, and um, uh, uh, he raised his family there. Uh, he was a, a, a produce uh, clerk in a supermarket. Um, so he, this was not a, a, an affluent family. Many African-Americans could afford it to buy homes in, in that community. I told a story in the book about an African-American uh, small businessman who had a trucking company that delivered uh, sheetrock to left the town when it was being built, but he was not permitted to live there. Um, so those homes, I say, sold for about $100,000. Today, they sell for three hundred, four hundred thousand dollars $400,000. Uh, the white families who were able to buy homes in Levittown uh, in the, the late 1940s, early 1950s, um, gained over the course of the next couple of generations $200,000, $300,000 in equity, in wealth. African-American families who had equal economic ability uh, but were prohibited from buying homes in places like Levittown, this was all over the country, I don't mean to make a, a special case of Levittown, uh, those families went, rented homes in, in cities, rented apartments in cities, and gained none of that equity. Uh, today, uh, those homes, I say, sell for three or $400,000. That's seven times national median income, unaffordable to uh, working-class or, or lower-middle-class families uh, that could have bought them in uh, the late 1940s and early 1950s. So we passed a law in 1968, a fair housing law, which in effect says, uh, okay, African-Americans, now you can move to Levittown. But it's an empty uh, uh, invitation because it's no longer affordable. The result is that um, today African American incomes, on average, are about uh, 60% of white incomes. But African American wealth is about 5% of white wealth. Uh, that enormous difference between a 60% income ratio and a 5% wealth ratio is almost entirely attributable to a federal unconstitutional housing policy practiced in the mid-20th century. So its uh, effects endure to this day, and they've never been remedied. Uh, the, the, this vast wealth difference is a very important contributor to the inequality that causes so, much prob so many problems in the society. So this is one of the things that ta Coates talks about in his work, The Case for Reparations. He talks very specifically about this created wealth gap and income gap. Um, you also talk about remedies. What kind of remedies are you advocating for, do you think, are, are necessary? Well, I really try not to talk too much about remedies, although, uh, as I've talked about this history, uh, People kept on asking me about remedies, and so I did throw in a small chapter about remedies, but I think it's premature to talk about remedies. I certainly can suggest a number of them. But um, before we talk about remedies, we have to transform 
Americans' understanding of how this happened, because, as I said earlier, if it happened de facto, then there's very little remedy that's possible. If it happened de jure, then not only are remedies possible, but they're constitutionally obligatory, because if the system was created by government, then it's under our constitution. Uh, it's required to be reformed and remedied by government. One of the things I say in the book is that let bygones be bygones is not a constitutional policy. So I can talk about remedies. There are many things we can do. We can, uh, for example, prohibit suburbs from uh, maintaining exclusionary zoning ordinances that prohibit the construction of homes that working-class families can afford, uh, single-family homes on small lot sizes or townhouses. Many white suburbs uh, have those kinds of ordinances that prohibit such construction. In many cases, the zoning ordinances were adopted with an explicit racial purpose. And so that's a reform that we can enact, but we're not going to enact that kind of reform unless we understand that the current arrangement was unconstitutionally created. So uh, let's talk about some of the recent changes in legislation and how that, you you touched on this, affected recent elections or relatively recent elections, both local and presidential. Well, my book doesn't address this. Uh, As as I said, I, um, I think that the kinds of policies we need to remedy this are not uh, on the agenda in the short term, and it wouldn't have mattered whether Hillary Clinton or Donald Trump was elected. Uh, there's no broad understanding of this history that, that leads to an understanding of a remedy. But there are very minor changes that are being made that will, are worsening the problem now. Uh, for example, at the end of the Obama administration, the administration adopted a rule uh, that um, permitted a higher subsidy. We, we have a program called the Housing Choice Voucher Program, uh, popularly known as the Section 8 program, which gives a subsidy to uh, lower-income families to rent apartments uh, at market rates. And the subsidies are calculated by uh, ensuring that they, by paying 30% of their income uh, for rent, they can rent a an apartment whose cost is the average rental cost in a metropolitan area. Well, those kinds of uh, subsidies are insufficient to rent an apartment in the middle-class community because rents are higher than the average there, and they're actually too much to rent in a lower-income community, and so landlords exploit the program and charge more than the market uh, requires for their um, uh, for their apartments. The Obama administration, as I say, adopted a rule at the end of uh, towards the end of its administration, saying that the housing authorities could adjust their subsidies their vouchers, so that families got higher vouchers to rent homes in middle-class communities and uh, lower uh, amounts for um, uh, already segregated communities. Uh, The Trump administration recently sent out a letter to housing agencies across the country uh, forbidding them from um, increasing these subsidies to rent in middle-class communities on the grounds that the, the president's budget uh, was going to uh, not provide enough funds to uh, support these higher voucher amounts. So that's an example of a policy change that is going to reinforce segregation and prevent even a very, very modest dent in uh, the segregated patterns that exist in um, the nation everywhere. So, so I wanted to step back a little bit, and what was it that inspired you to write this book? Well, for many years, I wrote about education policy. I've written previous books about education policy and many articles. Um, and uh, one of the things that I was concerned about when I wrote about education policy was the extent to which uh, children's uh, 
economic advantages, disadvantages uh, contributed to their lower achievements. So, for example, if a child uh, comes to school uh, with asthma and asthma rates are four times as great in, uh, for African-American children as they are for whites, that child is going to be more drowsy, up at night wheezing, frequently absent. Uh, children who have that kind of uh, condition are, um, uh, are not going to achieve at the same level as children who come to s school well-rested. And there are hundreds and hundreds of these conditions of uh, lower-class life of poor people that uh, interfere with their achievement. Well, I realized as I was doing this work that it's one thing for a child to come to school drowsy um, in a classroom of uh, well-rested children. A teacher can devote some special attention to that child, and uh, the school can provide some extra resources. And although the child will still have lower achievement, it might not be as low as it otherwise would be. But when you take children like that and you concentrate them in single schools, uh, the, the opportunities to uh, provide additional help are limited. You can't provide special attention to every child. Uh, it's no longer special attention. The entire curriculum tends to be more remedial, and it guarantees that there's going to be an achievement gap between black and white children. Well, when you concentrate children with those kinds of problems in single classrooms and uh, single schools, we call that segregation. And the reason we have so much school segregation today is because the neighborhoods in which schools are located are segregated. And um, so I began to look into how these neighborhoods came to be segregated, and I uncovered uh, a lot of this history, which, as I say, was once well known, there was nothing hidden about it. Uh, these projects, as I said before, in northern cities were uh, explicitly labeled for blacks and whites. Uh, everybody knew what the Federal Housing Administration was doing when it uh, prohibited the sale of suburban homes to African American families or required these deeds to have restrictions that prohibited resale. So it wasn't a hidden history, but I uncovered a forgotten history of. Um, how uh, our government uh, segregated America, and uh, my conclusion is that uh, there is an opportunity to remedy this, because if we understand that it was created by unconstitutional government policy, then we can also understand that we have both an opportunity and an obligation to remedy it. And what's next for you? Um, you've got this book to promote. You're also a research associate of the Economic Policy Institute, a fellow at the Thurgood Marshall Institute of the NAACP Legal Defense Fund. Um, it sounds like you've got a lot on your plate. What's your next point of focus? Well, I'm going to continue focusing on this for a while, um, on the, the history of residential segregation. I believe that uh, we're not in a position to consider remedies for this until we... Uh, have a much broader public understanding uh, until the the idea of de jure segregation is as widespread and as commonplace as the idea of de facto segregation is now. So I'm going to continue, continue writing about this uh, uh, pop policy of this history in, in articles and articles that might go into more detail in particular cities than uh, I can do in a book where I had to take samples from cities all across the country. I'm going to do my best to um, contribute to this conversation. I'm not the only one who's doing it. You mentioned before that ta Coates has been writing about it. But if more and more people uh, do write about this problem and, and start a conversation, we might get to the point where we can begin to think productively about how to fix it. We've been talking with Richard Rothstein. You can find his book, The Color of Law, in stores right now. Richard, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you very much. I'm Mark Rotella. And I'm Rose Fox, and this is Publishers Weekly Radio. Next up, PW Editorial Director Jim Milliot explained why everyone's mad at Amazon again. So stay tuned.
Hi, I'm Kim Phillipsstein, the author of Fear City, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio, direct from the PW offices in New York City. Every week we get insider info from Publishers Weekly editors and contributors. Today, PW Editorial Director Jim Milliot is here to tell us all about the controversy over Amazon's buy buttons. Hi, Jim. Hey, Rose. How are you? Doing well, thank you. So um, it sounds like Amazon has made some changes that people in publishing aren't happy about again. So uh, what's (laughs) what's the deal this time? Well, you know, you can't fool around with those buy buttons. I think that's the, the lesson we all learn. Um, but this one is something that Amazon says they do across most of their other product categories, and they're now introducing it to, um, to the book section. And what it is is a third-party resellers, in other words, you know, companies um, or individuals that uh, use Amazon to, to, sell, to sell their products can now compete for the quote-unquote featured buy button in the book section. And that will be the, you know, the, the button that you see first when you want to click through and, and to buy something. So they say that this is just like what they've done for a lot of other products, and this is bringing books in line with uh, you know, dish detergent and whatever else they sell. But um, books work a little differently. What's the difference here? Right. Well, um, you know, publishers won't dispute the fact that uh, Amazon can, and they sure do, <laughs> sell used books uh, through the site. But according to this program, you are supposed to sell only new books, and you have to, and you win the button through some algorithm they have that combines price, availability, and delivery, those types of things. So what what's troubling and kind of mystifying publishers is that a lot of these books that are supposed to be new, that are showing up on these featured buy buttons for the resellers, are really low-priced, and nobody can really quite figure out how these resellers could sell these books, especially new books, uh, at the price that's on there. So um, what's the the upshot of this? How has Amazon responded to these concerns? Well, as we said, they um, they say this is a policy that, that they've uh, extended from other product categories, that they've sold... Uh, new books and used books from resellers for a long time. But what's causing some of the confusion is what the term new means. Because um, in a letter that they sent to the resellers, it said, well, we'll sell, you need to sell books that are in new condition. Mm. Um, so some in the publishing world took this to mean, well, the resellers were using this as, sort of, as a loophole to you know, maybe sell used books or hurt books or remaindered books. I mean, the best the publishers can figure out at this stage of the game is that these resellers are most likely using remaindered books, which, you know, people in the industry know are books that were shipped out um, to stores and shipped back but nobody bought them, and then people, or then companies buy them and they, and they sell them. Um, technically, they're not supposed to be thought of as new, um, because they've been remaindered, but that won't stop uh, companies from from just selling them. I mean, the companies can legitimately sell them to, you know, they sell them to bookstores all the time. They can sell them to somebody else, but it's really up to um, then that third-party reseller 
to, to do the honorable thing and not sell the remainder book is no. So what's yeah. at stake for the publishers and authors and why they're worried about this is because when you go through the normal channels and you buy a book on Amazon and you click the, you, the button that always was there, that was basically the Amazon button, which they fulfill the, the sale for the publisher, and the publisher gets credit for the sale and money, and in turn the author gets royalties. But by using this uh, reseller button, um, the, the money is just split between the actual reseller and then Amazon takes a small cut. So, I mean, the Authors Guild, uh, for one, uh, you know, sent the uh, letter to all its members saying, um, you know, this has the potential to really cause some problems uh, for, for publishers and and for authors. And in fact, they, in their letter, they said it has the potential to decimate authors and publishers' earnings for many books, especially backlist titles. Mm. So what can be done about this? Um, what's, where's the, where do you think this is heading? Um, well, there's been some dialogue, I mean, some dialogue that we can find a little back and forth between Amazon and the publishers and authors. Um, but it could be, I don't know if it's heading for a showdown or not, because it, a lot of people do think that it probably affects the smaller publishers a little bit more than the big publishers. Um, we talked to some of the bigger publishers, and they're certainly aware of it and are monitoring it. Um, so it's uh, the little, the smaller publishers who might get you know, more sales from backlist titles, um, are a little bit more worried about it. But having said all that, we did get a, we did um, receive or get a hold of a letter that Penguin Random House sent to Amazon um, questioning where these um, books were coming that they were selling as new on this program. And they, uh, it was a pretty uh, forceful letter saying that, um, you know, we want to know the source of these books, what they are, and they reminded Amazon that if this product is listed as new, and in fact it's a used, hurt, or remainder book, you are in violation of Amazon's participation agreement, and we call upon you to immediately cease and desist from selling used, hurt, or remainder book as new. Wow. So uh, I think that went out just a couple of days ago. So we'll see if that has any impact at all on, on what's going on. Um, I think we all know Amazon usually sticks with programs they institute. So uh, I'd say the odds at this stage are in Amazon's favor. And so for those uh, shopping, for those not in book publishing, um, they're really not going to see anything new when they click on that book to order. Uh you're right. They probably won't. Um, and, you know, it, uh, when you buy stuff on Amazon, and there's a first button, then you can scroll down a little bit, and you'll see other buttons. And the regular Amazon button will be there. Um, so if you're uh, a concerned shopper who wants to make sure publishers and authors get their fair share, you would find that button. But uh, we all know that's not going to happen. And, you know, and this is keeping in Amazon's... Uh, policy of you know trying to be more efficient and give the lowest prices possible to to consumers so from that vantage point you know it can be seen as as a good thing and publishers and authors are 
have all sorts of speculation about other reasons Amazon may be doing it. Um, and this one of the theories that makes sense is that Amazon, you know, they have a lot of warehouses, but they also have a lot of products in those warehouses. So they may be trying to uh, cut down on their book inventory um, by letting these resellers uh, do more of the actual selling. Wow, so sounds like a real developing story, and it'll be interesting to see how it all plays out. Um, we'll definitely have you on to give us an update. Uh, well, I hope there's an update to give, Rose. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Jim. It's always great to have you on the show. Uh, I thank you. And now a final word from our sponsors. Beyond the headlines, beyond the routine, beyond the book, I'm Chris Keneally, host of Copyright Clearance and his podcast series, Beyond the Book. And I'm Andrew Albany, senior writer at Publishers Weekly. Join us each Friday for a Publishing News Week in Review podcast unlike any other. Learn all the breaking news and catch the best analysis on developments in the book trade, copyright law, and much more. You already know business as usual. Now go Beyond the Book. Listen to the free series and subscribe at beyondthebook.com. And that's it for today's show. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella, and you've been listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. Join us next week for another in-depth author interview, and we'll also have lots more juicy insider info on best-selling books and the nuts and bolts of publishing. In the meantime, you can listen to this and every episode of Publishers Weekly Radio absolutely free at publishersweekly.com slash pwradio. Subscribe to our podcast on iHeartRadio and iTunes and hear every new episode streamed live on audiobookradio.net. Check those sites every week for a brand new episode giving you the inside story on your favorite story. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to Publishers Weekly Radio Show. 